We're going to jump into our message. And uh, to begin our message today, I want to ask you, how would you or how do you articulate the message of Jesus? And I want to narrow that down. If you have one sentence to be able to explain to someone the message of Jesus, what would you say? There are lots and lots of different answers to that question. There are lots and lots of different ways and lots of different sentences that we could use for that, some of which are incredibly helpful and great conversation starters, some of which are not necessarily as helpful and are certainly going to shut down conversations. But there's lots of different ways of us being able to unpack it. And we recognise that, as we've talked about a lot and as we're going to continue to talk about, if we want to engage with the people around us, our neighbours, our friends, the people that we work with, the people who are part of our extended family, and help them to encounter the message of Jesus, particularly people who haven't been from a church background, haven't grown up in the church, this is a really, really important question for us to wrestle with. What's our starting point? How do we generate conversations with people who are spiritually curious to be able to say, well, here's one way of understanding what the core of the message of Jesus is all about. Now, there's not just one answer for this question. There are lots and lots of different ways of articulating that and lots of different conversation starters. And one of the things that we've talked about as we've headed into this year is that we want to continue to give you resources and tools and opportunities to be able to think about different ways of being able to just begin conversations about Jesus. And so we're going to keep coming back to this. But today, I think Paul gives us a very, very helpful sentence that is very, very useful as a conversation starter uh, in our relationships that we've got as we begin this year that reminds us about how central Jesus is. So we are doing this kickoff series where we're getting to the core of who we are. Last week, we began our series by talking about what it means for us to plant the seeds that God wants us to plant and to water the seeds that have already been planted But to recognise that at the end of the day, God's the one who does the growing in us and in our church as we move into another year. And now we're going to tackle the big three things about who we are, Jesus-centred, spiritual family and seeing lives change. And to do that this year, we're using uh, the books of 1st and 2nd Corinthians. And so you have your teaching notes, hopefully, that you grabbed on your way in. So if you want to jot things down as we go through today's message, you can do that. And you can open your Bible up to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, if you've got that with you, because that's where we're going to go in a few minutes. Last week, we did a fairly thorough overview of uh, the history of Corinthians. And so I'm not going to go into as much detail, still going to go into a little bit. Uh, But if you weren't here last week, I encourage you to go back and have a listen or a watch of that message because it really does set the scene to help us understand what Paul was doing in these letters that he wrote to the church in Corinth. But one of the things that we did mention is that Corinth was probably as close to our modern day cities as any of the other places that Paul went and visited. A lot of the things that we're processing through and that we're facing as a church were very real for the church in Corinth too. And so we know that in AD 50, Paul went and he spent 18 months in this city called Corinth. And he helped people to discover the message of Jesus. He formed a community of people, which called the church, who gathered together to continue uh, to process what it meant to follow Jesus together. And then after that, Paul moved on to another city called Ephesus, where he spent two years there. And while he was in Ephesus over those two years, he heard some reports about what was going on in Corinth. And some of it wasn't necessarily fantastic. And so Paul wrote two letters, one of which we don't actually have, and the other one which we've called First Corinthians. So he wrote two letters to them during that two-year period. He had planned, after he'd written 1 Corinthians, the second letter, stay with me, to go and visit them again. But unfortunately, a whole bunch of other things came up, and so he wasn't able to do that. 
Timothy, one of the other young uh, leaders of the early church, then came and spent some time with Paul and told him that the church in Corinth was having a fair few issues. There was lots of tension going on, lots of disunity happening, and in particular, there were uh, some leaders who had stepped up to bring a whole bunch of false teaching. They were dragging people away from the centrality of Jesus and getting them to focus on other things instead. So... Paul made a decision, so I'm going to change my plans and I need to go back to Corinth. And so he went back and he spent some more time with them. We know that that visit didn't go very well at all. If you read 2 Corinthians chapter 2, you'll see that Paul got attacked personally, his leadership got attacked, uh, he got really challenged about who he was and it wasn't a really great visit at all. And so he left and he went back to Ephesus again. At that point, he wrote a third letter, which we know that one of the other leaders in the early church, a guy named Titus, delivered to the church in Corinth. We don't have that letter, but we do have his fourth letter, which is what we call 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians actually comes in after Titus has come back to Paul and said, your first letter made a huge difference. So in that letter that got lost, the third one, I hope you're tracking with this, should have put it up on a graph or something. (laughs) On the third letter, Paul did say, guys, you've got to get this sorted out. Like, this is not okay, and you need to get back to uniting around Jesus. We know some of what was in that because of 2 Corinthians chapter 7, but Titus then comes back to Paul and says, great news, they have got their act together. They have sorted things out. That leader who was causing all the troubles, he's stepped away, and things are getting back on track. And it's in that context that Paul writes this fourth and final letter, 2 Corinthians, to them. Now, all of that's really, really important because we want to recognise that there was so much disunity happening in Corinth that what Paul did over and over again was simply to keep coming back to Jesus, to remind them, hey guys, this is what you're supposed to be doing, centering yourselves on Jesus. That comes through over and over again through these four letters, but particularly the two that we've got records of. But we also see Paul's refusal to give up on these people, to not just walk away from them and say, honestly, I'm sick and tired of you guys, like, get your act together, what are you doing? He stays with them, he continues to show his love for them and continues to stick with them through all of these challenges until ultimately they get to a place where they can move forward together in unity. So they're really, really beautiful letters. They're very complex in lots and lots of ways, but they're super helpful for us to be able to remind us about Paul's heart, but also what it means to stay focused on Jesus. So let's jump in. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and I'm going to read from the message translation because I think it's really, really helpful. Verse 14, Paul writes, Our firm decision is to work from this focused centre. One man died for everyone. That puts everyone in the same boat. He included everyone in his death so that everyone could also be included in his life, a resurrection life, a far better life than people ever lived on their own. This is a really important question for us to wrestle with. Did Jesus die for everyone or not? Did Jesus die for everyone or are there other things that we need to add on to that? It's a question that I've wrestled with a lot over the years because we can often fall into the trap of saying, yeah, well, we we believe sort of that Jesus died for everyone. We agree with that, but these caveats, I need to do this or I need to get this together or I need to sort this out in order for it to really take effect. And I've been very challenged over the years as I've actually started to think that through, to say if Jesus, who we believe is God in human form, coming to this earth and living a perfect life, dying a sacrificial death on the cross, 
and then rising from the dead isn't enough to make us right with God, I'm not really sure what I've got to offer that's going to get me over the line. Not sure that my good deeds, my being nice to people, my reading my Bible enough, my praying enough, my sacrificing enough is going to add to what Jesus has done. Either what Jesus did was enough or I think we're probably all in a lot of trouble. Paul says, no, one man died for everyone and therefore we're all in the same boat. All of us are included in Jesus' death, which means that we're all also included in Jesus' life. And what sort of life is that? A resurrection life, a far better life than people who ever lived on their own. When we think about Jesus' life post-resurrection, what do we think of? We think of a life that's filled with victory, a life where fear has been completely conquered and done away with, a life that's filled with joy, a life that has eternity as the focus and perspective, a life that's filled with life, what life is supposed to be all about. And so Paul says, if it's true that Jesus died for everyone, then we also receive that resurrection life. That's available to us as well. That's staggering when you stop and think about it. That's why we call it good news. The word gospel actually means good news. In its full version, it actually means really good news that changes things for everyone. So when we use the word gospel, that's what we're saying. And that's why we talk about the four biographies, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, as the four gospels, because they tell us the good news about what Jesus has done for us. So Paul continues in verse 16 and he says, because of this decision, we don't evaluate people by what they have or how they look. We looked at the Messiah that way once and we got it all wrong, as you know. We certainly don't look at him that way anymore. So Paul says, because of what Jesus has done, if this is all true, then that changes the way that we look at people. We don't look at them and see the outside. We don't look at them and see what they have. Instead, we look inside. And to drive that home, he says, just remember how we looked at Jesus when we were just looking at the externals of Jesus. We often talk about the reality of what the expectations were for the Israelites about what the Messiah was going to be. This military ruler who was going to come in and knock off the Roman army and elevate Israel back to the primary place in the world. People looked at Jesus and they were like, he doesn't look like that at all. He doesn't look like a military leader. He was born in Nazareth. His dad was a carpenter. He's just an ordinary guy. We looked at him and we thought, he's not the Messiah. We kind of got that wrong, didn't we? So we don't look at Jesus that way anymore. We remind ourselves that it's what's on the inside that matters. And so Paul continues in verse 17 and says, so now we also look inside. And what we see is that anyone united with the Messiah gets a fresh start, is created new. The old life is gone and a new life emerges. Look at it. So Paul says, we look inside and we see that anyone who's united with Jesus gets a fresh start, gets new life, gets to begin again. And this is really, really important because I don't know about you, but sometimes I can fall into the trap of thinking that God kind of makes do with me. In some ways that God's kind of papering over the cracks in my life, that the brokenness that's there is still there and God just kind of ignores it or puts up with it or kind of looks away from it. But what Paul says is that, no, our old life, Our selfish life, all of our mistakes, all of our brokenness, all of that is gone and dealt with 
and replaced with new life in Jesus. And remember, that's that resurrection life, that victory, courageous, joy-filled life. That's given to us and is available to us now. Now, I was trying to think about this this week and thinking of an example about this. And whenever I think about papering over cracks, I think about all of the times that I've tried to fix things in all of our houses over the years and generally have failed miserably because I'm really not that handy with a lot of those things. But I still try over and over again. And so in particular, when uh, we lived in Canada, we lived in a two-storey house. So a lot of the houses in Canada are um, what are called semi-detached houses. So two houses that are next to each other. Um, but because of that, they build up. So two-storey house with three bedrooms and a bathroom upstairs and then our living area downstairs and then we had a basement as well. And so our bathroom was located directly above our kitchen and because it was a fairly small house and a fairly small bathroom, our shower was in the bathtub. So we had to have showers in our bathtub. So we'd been there for a little while. All of a sudden one day we start to hear this dripping noise in the kitchen. What's that noise? What is going on here? So try and work out what's going on. Assume that a pipe must be leaking or something, but try and sort it out, and then it stopped. That's really, really weird. So we tried to sort out, okay, where could this be? Oh, that's right. The bathroom is directly above the kitchen. In particular, the bathtub is directly above the kitchen. So I think, well, obviously, we just need to re-silicon around the bath. If we do that, around seal the bath again, everything will be great. That'll stop the drips. So get everything, organise that, do it. Looks really, really great. Nice and neat. Next day when people are having showers, drip, drip, drip. Seriously, you've got to be kidding me. Here we go again. So nope, that didn't solve it. So try and think what else it could be. The grout in the bathroom was not really that amazing. It was kind of starting to flake away a little bit. So it's like, oh, fix the grout. It must be leaking in through the tiles and then somehow coming through. So sand all the grout out, redo all the grout. Looks really fantastic. Very proud of myself. I've fixed it this time. No, not at all. Next day, showers, drip, drip. Got to be kidding me. So, and this went on for a very, very long time tried all sorts of different things. We ended up cutting a hole in our ceiling to try and work out exactly what was going out. Had my phone out. I'm videoing up there trying to work out where the drips are coming from. Nothing. Could not get anywhere at all. Eventually, after a significant amount of trial and error, we discovered that actually the issue was the tap mechanism. Now, the tap, to be fair to me, was up the other end from where the drips were happening. So I'm like, well, it can't be related to that. But the water, as water does, had found its way all the way along the bath and then dripping down. So replace the tap mechanism. Guess what happened? No more drips. (laughs) Happiest day of my life. I was so excited. We finally fixed it. Now, in some ways, it's a bit of an inadequate example, but I think you understand the point helps us to recognise that we just paper over the cracks or we think that's what God's doing in our lives. There's all these bits and pieces and we just hopefully we can kind of put some silicon around the edge, fill in the grout and maybe it'll stop the drips. God doesn't do that for us. God takes out all of that old stuff that's not working properly and he replaces it with something new, Jesus' resurrection life. So what are some of the examples of what we get to experience because of this new life? Well, it changes our sense of purpose. No longer do we live for ourselves, but we live for Jesus. We get a new sense of focus about what our life is all about and what it is that we're here to do. We're going to come back to one of the key things about that in a couple of minutes. Our priorities change. The things that are most important in our life start to shift. 
The way that we think about our relationships, the way that we think about our finances, the way that we think about our possessions, how we spend our time, what security looks like, those things shift because of the new life that we're given. Our perspectives change. As Paul has already said, we change the way that we look at people. We change the way that we look at situations. We change the way that we respond to things because of this new life that's been given to us. We place love at the centre of everything that we do as our primary focus and allow everything to come out of that. All of that is given to us. New life that we receive because of Jesus. And so how come? How do we get all of this? Is it because we get our act together enough? Is it because we do enough? We prove ourselves enough? No. Paul says in verse 18, all of this comes from the God who settled the relationship between us and him and then called us to settle our relationships with each other. God put the world square with himself through the Messiah, giving the world a fresh start by offering forgiveness of sins. All of this is because of God's love for us. The God who comes and settles the relationship between us and him, puts the world square with himself through Jesus, gives us a fresh start, offers us forgiveness of sins. And this language about settling the relationship is really very similar to the idea of paying off a loan or settling a debt. So think about loans that you may have had or loans that you're going to have, whether that's a mortgage, a car loan, a uni loan, big amounts of money. We know what it feels like to have these huge debts in our lives. But imagine how you'd feel if someone came along and said to you in the midst of a huge debt, I've got this. I'm going to pay that off for you. And there's no obligation for you. You don't have to do anything. This isn't because I want anything from you. You're not going to owe me anything. I just want to clear the debt so that you don't have it anymore. It's gone and it's dealt with. Imagine how that will feel. That's incredible. But do we recognise the same things happen to us, that God has settled the debt with him? All of the mistakes that we make, all of the selfish decisions that we make, all of the times that we hurt other people, all of the times that we don't live the way that we know God wants us to live, God says, I've got this. It's okay. And it's not because you then owe me. It's not because you've got all these obligations. It's just because I love you that I want to settle that debt. It's amazing. All God, all gift. It's incredible. So what do we do with all of this? What's our response then to all of this? Paul says, God has given us the task of telling everyone what he's doing. We are Christ's representatives God uses us to persuade men and women to drop their differences and enter into God's work of making things right between them. We're speaking for Christ himself now. Become friends with God. He's already a friend with you. So what's our response to all of this? Well, Paul says we get to be Jesus' representatives, Jesus' ambassadors, agents of reconciliation, different translations talk about. And it never ceases to amaze me that God trusts us enough to be his representatives. That God trusts us enough to be the ones who are his message bearers. God could let people know about him any way that he wants. There's all sorts of different ways that God could just directly intervene in people's lives. For some reason, God chooses to use us. Chooses to give us the opportunity to be the ones who get to share this incredible message. 
All of us have been given a mission. Persuade men and women to drop their differences and enter into God's work of making things right between them. This follows on a lot from what we talked about last week about the importance of unity for us. Our focus is on uniting together, on togetherness, not on differences and divisions. Because if God's done everything necessary to make things right with us, then why on earth would we want to put divisions between us and other people? We should live in a relationship with God the same way as we should live in a relationship with the people around us, finding common ground, embracing right, full, complete relationships. But I love the way that Paul sums up what that message is. Become friends with God. He's already a friend with you. Become friends with God. He's already a friend with you. I wonder what would change if that was our starting point in the way that we approach God in our everyday life. That every day we got up and we recognised God's already friends with me. Today's not about me trying to earn God's friendship, trying to prove myself to God enough that he might say, okay, I'll kind of welcome you in. If I started every day recognising God loves me, God accepts me, God welcomes me, God embraces me, and that's my starting point. And now the rest of my day is to say, what does it look like for me to pursue my friendship with God? How would that change the way that I would think, the way that I would function? But even more than that, what would change if that was our starting point in our conversations with other people about Jesus? If our starting point was, did you know that God's already friends with you? What does it look like for you to become friends with him or to pursue a friendship with him? How would that change the perspectives of the people that we interact with throughout the week? How would that change their understanding of what God wants from them or what God is even like? If this was our starting point, become friends with God, he's already a friend with you, what would change? As we begin a new year here at Brooklyn Park, We want to recommit ourselves to being a Jesus-centred church, to remind ourselves that all of this is because of what Jesus has done. Just like Paul says, our firm decision is to work from this focused centre. Everything that Jesus has done, focusing on Jesus' life, death and resurrection. That's who we are. That's what we come back to. But that's also the privilege that God gives us to be his message bearers who help other people to discover that message as well. So I want to give us an opportunity to reflect on what that might look like as we head into this year. What does becoming more Jesus-centred look like for me in 2022? I want to encourage you to take some time to jot down some notes. You can feel free to talk to the person next to you. But out of the things that we've talked about today, is there one thing that maybe has latched on and been helpful for you to be able to say, I really want to pursue being more Jesus-centred in this way? And in particular, one of the things I would love you to think about is whether there's someone in your life who you know would benefit from being able to have a conversation that maybe starts with become friends with God, he's already a friend with you. If there's someone who comes to mind or someone that comes on your heart, I encourage you to write that person's name down. And to start praying for opportunities to have that conversation as we move into the next few weeks. But let's take some time to reflect together and we'll come back and pray and transition across to communion.
Let's pray. Jesus, once again, we declare that you are the Lord and the leader of our church. As we start a new year, our commitment is to you. Our commitment individually is to follow you. Our commitment as a church is to follow you. And we thank you that we can do that in confidence because of what you've done for us, because of the security that we have in your life, your death and your resurrection, that you have given us new life. That is a staggering reality. And we pray that as we move into another year that you would excite us about what it looks like to live from that posture and that position of the incredible new life that you've given to us. But we thank you that that isn't just something that's for us, that you have given us this privilege and this responsibility of being your representatives, of being the ones who have the privilege of being able to take your message of reconciliation to the people around us. And so we pray as we head into this week for opportunities to be able to have conversations with the people around us who we know are searching so desperately for answers, people who are papering over the cracks in their own lives, trying to find a way forward. You would help us to be able to engage with them and to connect with them, to share this incredible truth, that because of you, we are already friends with God. Now we have the privilege of exploring what that friendship looks like together. So inspire us, excite us about what that looks like as we begin a new year and give us opportunities to be able to share the hope that we have in you as we move forward. In your name we pray. Amen.